Hello, and thank you for joining today's podcast on screening for alcohol use in pain management and primary care. It's about time. My name is Dr. Jeff Gooden, and I am a pain management addiction specialist and anesthesiologist, as well as a consultant to Quest Diagnostics Prescription Drug Monitoring Franchise. I'm joined today by Dr. Jack Kane. Hey, Jack, can you introduce yourself? How you doing, Dr. Gooden? Thanks for having me today. I'm Dr. Jack Kane, Quest Diagnostics Director and Medical Science Liaison, specifically for uh, drug monitoring and toxicology. Thanks, Jack. I think we should uh, be able to give our audience today some great learning points about how to screen for alcohol use in their practice. Uh, we recognize that the abuse and misuse of alcohol and prescription and illicit drugs really remains an epidemic in the U.S., and most clinicians aren't even aware of some of their testing options for alcohol. But before we go on, let me just remind everybody a bit about Quest Diagnostics. Quest is one of the larger labs in the country. They serve one in three adult Americans and about half of the physicians and half of the hospitals in the U.S. They have the world's largest database of clinical lab results, which offer us diagnostic insights that help improve patient care. They do more than 10 million drug tests each year, so Quest really has the experience to help you implement a successful prescription and alcohol drug monitoring program, really one that helps protect your practice, safeguard your patients and keep your community safe. And at the end of our podcast, we'll give you an introduction to how you can call for help through our, what we call our Rx Tox line, which gives 24-hour service to clinicians with test ordering and results of uh, interpreting your results. But for now, let's get into the heart of our matter. We know that alcohol, opioids, benzodiazepines, muscle relaxants are some, some of the more commonly utilized central nervous system acting medications. And if you've been following some of the data about the dangers of opioids, we know that concurrent use of alcohol and opioid analgesics is common among patients. And the dangers there is that co-ingestion causes not only synergistic, but additive effects leading to drowsiness, confusion, respiratory depression, and right, what makes the news? Death. One of the things I was surprised to learn in preparing for this podcast is that alcohol is the leading preventable cause of death in the United States after tobacco product use and poor diet and physical inactivity. The prevalence rates of alcohol use are really alarmingly high. The CDC tells us that excessive alcohol consumption results in about 88,000 deaths each year. Now, Jack, I'll just put that in perspective. When you look at the prescription opioid-related deaths, it's probably around 20,000 or so now. It's really way down. The deaths from alcohol is 88,000 each year, yet where, is, where are all the headlines in the newspapers? They're all surrounding opioid analgesics. You know, according to the 2017 National Survey on Drug Use and Health, that's a survey that goes out to hundreds of thousands of American homes. 70% of people who answered say they dr drank alcohol in the past year, 56% said they drank alcohol in the past month. So I don't think that's a surprise, right? Alcohol is a, a, a legal, illicit substance, and people are allowed to drink. But about half of the respondents say that they drank in the last month. Just to catch up on some other statistics, 18% of patients who went to the ER due to an opioid overdose back in 2010 had consumed alcohol with their opioids. Alcohol was similarly involved in 27% of benzodiazepine drug-related ER visits. So 
Drug mixing is really a problem, and Dr. Kane and I will give you some insights into drug mixing during this podcast. And then, let alone the cost, we think between tobacco, alcohol, and illicit drug use, it's estimated at costing this country more than $740 billion related to multiple things like lost work, productivity, healthcare expenses, crime, et cetera. Hey, Jack, can you take us through how a clinician might actually screen patients outside of uh, of drug testing? Like, how do we talk to patients about whether they're using alcohol or not? Yeah, it's interesting. We think about all the tools that we have out there that monitor appropriate prescribing and or dispensing of prescription drugs. And then there are certain tools that help assess uh, whether or not a patient might be misusing substances. Uh, but what is the most subjective tool? You know, I mentioned tools that are used, such as maybe the prescription drug monitoring programs or state PDMPs uh, that monitor, hey, was an opioid prescribed or was a benzodiazepine prescribed? Why? Because of the inherent risks that those substances have when you take them in and of itself. And then, as you mentioned, uh, some dangerous combinations. But what about alcohol? Are some of these programs actually monitoring <laughs> the prescribing or dispensing of alcohol? Uh, no, they're not. And so, although there's although self-reported and clinician-administered screening tools are available, uh, the only really objective tool to assess whether or not a patient's actually uh, consumed alcohol, and I say exposure even that, and we'll elaborate on that in a minute, is drug testing, clinical drug testing. And how so? We look for specific metabolites that are only formed after you've been exposed to alcohol. And that's the gap that drug testing fills. Yeah, I got to tell you, you know, in, in medical school, you know, clinicians are taught, hey, you need to ask your patients. We use tools like the CAGE tool. We all learned that early on and, and the audit screening tool for, for alcohol use. But I find, you know, I'm in practice more than 20 years. I ask patients, are they drinking? They say no. But when I actually drug test them, they come up positive for alcohol. So although it's great to have questionnaires and to ask patients, we know that self-report is usually not accurate. Absolutely. All right. So Dr. Kane mentioned that we're able to drug test or alcohol test patients in ways that you might not be familiar with. So you've all heard about the breathalyzer, right? If the breathalyzer will detect alcohol concentrations, ethanol, in your breath for a number of hours. But technology and science has brought us to the point, as Dr. Kane mentioned before, that there are other specific metabolites of alcohol, minor metabolites, which we could pick up on drug testing. And Jack said something really important. Drug testing may be the only objective tool that informs clinicians whether or not a patient has drank, right? The self-reports just aren't reliable. So it turns out that the majority of alcohol we consume gets degraded in the intestines to acid aldehyde by alcohol dehydrogenases. And that's why the breathalyzer allows us to detect ethanol in the breath. But we know that we could test for other minor metabolites. And these things are alcohol breakdown products that come from the liver, and they're called ETG and ETS. Jack, can you tell us a little bit about those metabolites? Yeah, you know, we always think about the metabolic pathways from the laboratory perspective. What do we expect to see in patient urine specimens or even blood specimens or oral fluid specimens, uh, specifically for this test, for testing for alcohol and what we're referring to as a metabolites ethyl sulfate or ETS and ethyl glucuronide ETG. It is the minor metabolic pathway that alcohol undergoes in terms of degradation or biotransformation, and then it becomes eliminated in the liver. And so while it is a minor metabolic pathway, 
it is reliable, meaning we consistently see ETG and ETS in urine specimens if patients are exposed to alcohol. And we see them in higher concentrations if a patient's actually consuming alcohol. And then to what volume are they consuming alcohol? Are they binge drinking? Was it one or two drinks the night before? Uh, while we can't dose correlate, we do anticipate seeing ETS and ETG. So it's estimated to account for only around 1% of alcohol elimination. But again, that might not sound significant, but trust me, it's reliable when you're testing at nanograms per milliliter in urine specimens. These are direct water-soluble metabolites, and they remain detectable for up to 80 hours after the elimination of alcohol from the body. And so there are other biomarkers that we use that might you know, help tell the story of uh, heavy alcohol consumption, you know, the most notorious being AST and ALT, the hepatic biomarkers, but they're nonspecific. There are other conditions that can contribute to elevated AST and ALT levels. While if I see ETS and ETG in a urine specimen, I know that a patient has been exposed to alcohol. The question is, where did it come from? Yeah, so Jack, you know, a question I get all the time is, hey, yes, I you know, can, can we tell how much they drank or what they drank or do the results give us any insights into that? No, I will say this. We do have cutoffs that are established by SAMHSA and, you know, always in laboratory, you can go lower depending on the technology you use. I mean, we can go down to one nanogram per milliliter, but when you do that, you increase the propensity for identifying incidental exposure cases. And so we use cutoffs of 500 for ETG and 100 for ETS to essentially rule out incidental exposure of alcohol, meaning if you test positive for ETS and ETG above our cutoffs, there's a very good chance you consumed alcohol. That being said, it is possible if you were using sub products very heavily, such as hand sanitizer or mouthwash, it is certainly possible to detect test positive for ETG and ETS at low levels. But that being said, if I see, I just had a patient result the other day, 12,000 nanograms per milliliter of ETG and around 3,000 for ETS. Uh, yeah, <laughs> you've consumed alcohol. That sounds like alcohol consumption. So Jack, you know, most clinicians won't, you know, this is kind of diving into the weeds, but I know when you go to the literature, there are other potential biomarkers and I've seen some labs offer these. Maybe just a quick insight. I mean, there's one that, that's known as PET. Are any of these, you know, free fatty acid ethyl uh, esters, are any of these being used commonly? Uh, I would say, yeah, the PETH testing or phosphatidylethanol testing. Uh, a lot of transplant teams are actually starting to implement this kind of test uh, because it provides a longer window of detection for alcohol exposure, one to two weeks. Uh, the issue here is that why it's not in other practice settings, maybe even in primary care setting, is because it's invasive, meaning that you need to collect a blood specimen. And a lot of times providers don't find that to be the most popular uh, method of collection for drug testing. Great. So let's go back to what clinicians are actually going to test and talk a little bit about ETG and ETS. I can tell you I've noticed that detection times vary and it's person to person. And I assume it's related to how much alcohol was consumed, although you told us we, we can't know for sure. But if somebody has a, a light beer versus, you know, six gin and tonics, I would assume we may have a longer window of detection based on, on the more heavier drinking. And then, yeah, you got to think there's genetics involved. We all metabolize alcohol at a different pace. And some of us have a little bit of fatty liver or, you know, uh, genetic deficits to alcohol metabolism. So how do we take that into account 
as clinicians, or do we even, or do is basically the most important answer, are they positive for alcohol or not? I think it's as simple as positivity, ETG and ETS. Uh, in, in this particular scenario, yes, the issue, there's always the propensity for having uh, liver disease that might impact the degradation or the biotransformation of alcohol into ETG and ETS. Uh, but generally, uh, if we get into a complex patient case, uh, I'll ask the provider, hey, does this patient have any documented disease states that might impact metabolism of a particular substance? Then there's incidental exposure. And the incidental exposure I elaborated on earlier, where you could consume products that contain alcohol. Alcohol is a solvent and it helps preserve the quality of products. Uh, well, some of these products can be mouthwash that contain alcohol, cold preparations that are found over the counter, generally liquid formulations, hand sanitizers. Um, we do get a lot of uh, questions about that. I will say this above our cutoffs, you better be using hand sanitizers very heavily. And one of the first questions I ask is, is this patient a healthcare provider? And who's washing their hands once an hour, every eight hours? So, you know, it's not always about what's possible. It's about what's practical, what's likely. And then use that information from a drug test result to open the dialogue with the patient and hopefully get the truth um, so that a provider can make an intervention that might save a patient's life. Thanks, Jack. That's, that's great. And, you know, uh, I could tell you that historically we've seen that, especially like the diabetic patients or patients with urinary tract infection, you know, there are certain bacteria that can create alcohol from excessive sugars in the urine. So I know that can cause a positive ETG. How can clinicians determine the difference between somebody coming up who hasn't drank alcohol, like someone with a UTI or diabetes spilling sugar into the, uh, to the urine, or someone who consumed alcohol? Yeah, this is a very interesting uh, occurrence that, we see hap- that we've seen happen in the lab industry was originally uh, toxicology labs were testing for ETG, and it was considered a reliable biomarker. But then there were strange cases where we would see just small amounts of ETG, and you know, the patient come to find wasn't actually using alcohol. And what we found out was that bacteria can be evolved, involved uh, in uh, actually producing ETG, and it can also degradate ETG as well. And we've seen that because we also test for another biomarker now called ethosulfate. It's a little bit more modern in the toxicology uh, testing world, but we look for both ETG and ETS. And why is that important? Because the bacteria, such as E. coli, doesn't have the mechanism in place to synthesize or degrade ETS. And there's a saying now at, at Quest Diagnostics, if ETS there, report it, ETS. Yeah, no, that's great. So that's important because Quest apparently doesn't report a positive ETG result unless the ETS concentration is above the threshold. So I think clinicians could have a, a pretty good sense that if we're reporting ETS, that more than likely there was exposure to alcohol. And, you know, Jack, while, while we're on that note, I just want to remind clinicians from a, a pain and addiction doctor that's been doing this for more than 20 years, we never take a single test result and make critical clinical decisions about it. We always go back to the patient. We talk to them. We try to interpret the results. We look at the entire clinical picture. We investigate other potential causes. We counsel patients. So many times I see patients who are cut completely off their therapies for, let's say, a positive alcohol test when... Like you say, it could have come from some inadvertent exposure or some, uh, hey, I, you know, I had a sip of champagne at, at my son's wedding or something like that. So you always need to take the entire clinical picture into account. But remember, 
if there's ETS positive on the, on the urine screen, more than likely the patients were exposed to alcohol. Hey, Jack, we're coming close to the end. Can you tell clinicians if they want to order an alcohol screen in addition to a drug screen, how might they do it through Quest? Yeah, you, uh, test code 90079 actually is the methodology that we support, meaning screening first. So we do an ETG and ETS test on immunoassay. And then if positive on immunoassay, we confirm it on our definitive mass spec technology. And again, our cutoffs are for ETG for 500 nanograms per milliliter and ETS 100 nanograms per milliliter. And those higher, higher cutoffs are meant to rule out incidental exposure. Yeah, that's great. I mean, having that higher cutoff for ETG makes it less likely that somebody that used hand sanitizer or mouthwash that day is going to come up positive because these lab tests can be, can be pretty sensitive. But the fact that we do uh, mass spec, that's really the preferred methodology and the one that gives you very sensitive, very specific quantitative values. So to summarize today, as clinicians, we can screen our patients for alcohol. The two biomarkers for you to remember are EPG, ethyl glucuronide, and EPS, ethyl sulfate. There are certainly advantages over using traditional things like breathalyzer. We get a longer window of detection. And clearly, for any patients who are on controlled substances or anybody that you suspect has problem drinking, it's great that we ask patients about drinking, but once in a while, we really do need to confirm with objective data whether your patients are consuming alcohol. It's for their safety and for ours, like mixing benzos and alcohol or opioids and alcohol or antidepressants and alcohol. That's just bad and dangerous practice. Quest Diagnostics offers testing for these biomarkers with a longer detection window, as we mentioned. And really, we're here to help you. We know that alcohol and drug misuse remains of epidemic proportions in the U.S. And really, we should have a drug and alcohol testing program if we're out there prescribing any kinds of controlled substances. Dr. Jack Kane, my name is Dr. Jeff Gooden. On behalf of Quest Diagnostics, we'd like to thank you all today for joining this podcast. To listen to more of our podcasts, visit questdrugtesting.com or subscribe in your favorite podcast venue.